Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowake. In the coming days, Americans will be celebrating July 4th, our Independence Day and celebration of the birth of our country. However, what few Americans may realize is a few days prior, on July 1, our closest ally and largest trading partner, Canada, will be celebrating its independence, Canada Day. Today, I am honored to have with me Ambassador Bruce Heyman, who served as the 30th United States Ambassador to Canada from 2014 to 2017. Born in New York and raised in Ohio, Bruce is a graduate of Vanderbilt University, where he met his wife, Vicki, and married in 1980 in Kentucky. The ambassador, along with his diplomatic spouse, Vicki, authored the number one best-selling book, The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty. Prior to serving as the U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Ambassador Heyman spent 30 years in the private sector with Goldman Sachs, and in 2014 and 2016, the ambassador was named in the top 50 most influential business people by Canadian Business Magazine. Ambassador Heyman, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Thanks, my friend. It's so good to be with you again today, and I look forward to our conversation. I'm very excited about it myself. You know, in these crazy times, we uh, don't have an opportunity to get together uh, in person anymore. Hopefully that will change in the coming months. But it's nice to see your face via modern technology, and I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. You know, I want to start off the conversation with some history. And after a long and very successful career you had in the private sector, what compelled you to pursue serving as a United States ambassador? And if you can, give our listeners a bit of history on how one might go about doing that. So I I, I never grew up thinking I would be a U.S. ambassador. I you know, we we were raising our family in Chicago, uh, active in the community, but not active in politics per se. You know, giving back in philanthropic ways, and um, you know, in the business community, and then raising our children. And one night, we were invited to a dinner at a friend's home, and he said, "I'm going to have our new U.S. senator come over for dinner and have a discussion." And look, I, I didn't want to get involved in politics. I said, you know, I, I even hemmed and hawed. And Vicky said, they're good friends of ours. Let's just go do it. And we sat down that night and had dinner with then fairly new Senator Barack Obama. And he sat and talked about his vision of the world and his vision for the U.S. domestically, but also the vision geopolitically. Very few times have I sat down with somebody and my head is just completely nodding and in agreement yeah. the whole time. You know Bruce and Vicky pretty well, Bob, but we got in the car and it was like dead silence afterwards. Like it was one of those, OMG, what yeah. was that? Who is this guy? And literally, and Vicky and I still debate this to the to this day who said it, but we did say, and let's say together, if that guy ever runs for president, I'm gonna work for that guy. What and was it? What was it that night at dinner? What was something specific that Barack Obama? I mean, apparently all of what he said really made an impact on the two of you. But was there just one moment that just grabbed you and you went, "Wow, this guy really has 
a case for the future of our country? So domestically, both Vicki and I sat on boards of the two big hospitals in town. So she was always involved in children's work and she was on the board of the children's hospital. I was on the board of Northwestern Memorial Hospital, the very large downtown uh, academic medical center. And I recognized the challenges that those without health care, both of us did, and the pains of that. And he talked about, you know, the, the existential right, a country as wealthy as the United States of America, and that each citizen should have the right to health care and have access to it. And it, it just rang so true with us. And obviously the way he described it and phrased it. And, you know, I don't, I don't recall if he talked about his mom in that way, which I know he has so many other times. So I get some of these times now mixed up as to who, when he said what, but it, that, that really rang for us. And then, you know, what, what happened is that Vicki and I, and, and Vicki in particular, have been working on a lot of very domestic yeah, charities. She said, wow, if we could impact the country and develop policies that would tackle these, the leverage of that is so much bigger than just alone doing what we do locally. Now, we didn't give up what we did locally, and we still do that quite a bit. But we realized the power of making the change and having the leadership in Washington and the impact that that will have. And so, look, we we got involved in the campaign. We were involved in both campaigns. And those of you who have ever had the opportunity to go to either a rally led by Michelle Obama or Barack Obama, almost every one of those rallies during those two campaigns, the two of them would look out into the crowd and say, so what are you individually going to do to get back to your country? And, you know, the, the, while they said it to a crowd, they had just the power of almost making you feel that they were talking to you individually. So even though I was standing in the back of the room many of the times and I had heard them so many times over, it just felt like Barack Obama's asking me, what are you going to do now to get back to your country? And so, you know, we both looked at each other and we've been fortunate in life. And it was time for us to to raise our hand and say, you know, if we could do more for our country, you know, we'd love that opportunity. And we were blessed to have the opportunity to represent the United States and Barack Obama in Canada. And what an inspirational story that is. Clearly, I've had some experiences as well with President Barack Obama and and no doubt he is an inspiration, not only to you and me, but to all of America. And as we think about that type of inspiration, what inspired you and Vicki to want to pursue the opportunity of representing his administration and the United States in Canada? So it's funny, you know, uh, when we were sitting there having a conversation with a senior person in the administration. And he said, would you all consider ambassadorship? And Vicky said, we would. And he was like, uh, <laughs> would we, uh, you know, and of course, Vicky and I had already discussed this, but, uh, and left him hanging a little bit, but, uh, the reality is Vicky or I could have easily been the ambassador. I think, uh, you know, my following protocol, as you like to use my following protocol is is probably easier because Vicky is a kind of goes the uh, the road less traveled and so she she had the perfect role but why Canada why would we even think of Canada 
Well, the fact of the matter is Vicky's family emigrated from Europe, Eastern Europe, and then through, through London to Canada. And her grandfather came down and started a barbershop with his brother in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so she had family connections there. I had business connections there. And uh, for Goldman Sachs, um, you know, led a business that covered much of Canada. And so we had family ties with business ties. We had social ties in which we traveled on vacation to Canada. And so the combination of all the above, you know, we liked Canada uh, going uh, into this process. And so our request was Canada, Canada, Canada. And they said, well, you have to pick something else. <laughs> and I said, okay, we, we actually did say Canada, Canada, Canada. And then we tried to figure out people like yourselves who, who had already been promised a, a specific country. We put those names down, knowing that only Canada was. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, we, we really wanted Canada. Well, it, it sounds like clearly there was a significant fit for uh, pursuing that opportunity. You know, Canada is a very strategic partner to the United States. In fact, as I mentioned, you and your wife, Vicki, wrote the book, The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty, on the importance of that relationship. What were some highlights from the book Americans Should Understand about the U.S.-Canada relationship and its significant impact that relationship has on U.S. citizens? So I'm going to take you back a minute. I'm going to do a little bit, bear with me, a little riff on sure. on important Canada is to the United States. You know, a lot of countries are next door to other countries, but boy, you'd you rarely get the opportunity to live next door to your best friend and ally and, and somebody who's simpatico with you. So the, think of the country Canada. It's the second largest landmass in the world uh, next to Russia. It has only 37 million people. And 80% of those people border the only country that it does border. See, Canada borders only the United States and three oceans. And so 80% of those people live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. So how close are we? We are really, really close. But being close, you know, that happens all around the world. But what is so important is how aligned we have been. And that alliance is reciprocal, but Canada has been there for the United States at every twist and turn. Now, many people know the story about the Iran hostage crisis and the Argo and the movie that was done. Right. I got to know. That was a great movie, by the way. Yeah. Ken Taylor. I met him when I was in Canada. And my, I, I was like, oh my God, you're a hero. He goes, no, I was just the master doing what, what you would normally do. And I'm like, really? Uh, so <laughs> I, I had only hope, but I don't, I don't think I'm going to have that opportunity to do that. But they were there for us in the Iran hostage crisis. They were there for us in 9-11. And now they have a play come from away where people are all celebrating the Canada-U.S. relationship. You know, when Katrina hit the You Canadian know, I want to interject on that. I actually, yeah. I actually had the opportunity, Ambassador, to see that play with the members of the Consul General of Canada in Dallas recently. So wow. it was it was really a special a special time for me. I really enjoyed it. But I'm sorry, I I interrupted. No, no. Look, and I had the opportunity when they were just before going to Broadway. They performed it back in Newfoundland, uh, in Gander, and I went and I was there when in the hockey rink, and they were there 
portraying all of these various people that actually still live there. And so they met the person who they were portraying for the very first time. That is extraordinary. It was was extraordinary. But the Canadians have always been there for us. You know, they've been there in Katrina. They've been there. Who were the first to arrive? When I talked to uh, Mitch Landrieu uh, about the Canadians, he goes, they were the first to come down. And Hurricane Sandy, who put the wires back up in New Jersey? The Quebecers came down and helped do that. And so I would just say, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's 9-11, whether it's Iran hostage crisis, whether it's, whether it's anything, really, the Canadians have, have been there at our side as our trusted partner, NATO. By the way, Canadians and Americans, they protect North America together in this thing called NORAD, and it, they, that it's joint command. So literally, you have U.S. generals reporting up to the prime minister, and you have Canadian generals reporting up to the president. You don't have that anywhere else in the world. That's the specialness of this relationship. But that's just that. I mean, we're the largest, most, when I was ambassador, was the largest trading relationship in dollars. It's not today, but it's the best trading relationship because it's balanced. You know, what we send to them and they send to us, we make things together. Environmentally, Look, they're the largest supplier of energy to the United States that we don't buy ourselves. And so, yes, they have fossil fuels, but yes, it's it's hydro and wind and all kinds of other resources. Oh, we share the Great Lakes together. That's 25% of the world's fresh water right there. And we border on that. 40 million people use that as drinking water. So we protect the land together. And so, look, there's just no more important. We have a lot of important relationships in the world, Bob, but there are no more important relationships than the relationship the U.S. has with Canada. Well, you mentioned the prime minister of Canada. The prime minister of Canada is Justin Trudeau. I mean, he's one, if not the most popular prime minister in the world for a variety of reasons. I think it goes without saying he's probably the most attractive prime minister in the world. The man is extraordinarily good looking. But there's a lot more to the prime minister than just his looks. You and your wife, Vicky, had the wonderful opportunity to work directly with Prime Minister Trudeau. So tell us about a little about his leadership style and the relationship you and Vicky developed with his administration. So I'm going to take you back just a step. And, and when we arrived, that there was this, this at least strain that existed between Canada and the U.S. over the Keystone Pipeline. During that strain, the Canadians were, you know, you'll read about it in the book, but, you know, look, the Canadians were trying to send a message to Washington how important it was and kind of giving me a bit of the cold shoulder when I first arrived in Ottawa. So we had a lot of time on our hand. We traveled the entire country, as they would say, coast to coast to coast. We say... Justin Trudeau was not the prime minister when you arrived. He was not. He was head of the third party. And so what Vicky did was she just developed a really nice relationship with Sophie and they would walk around the neighborhood in, uh, in, in Ottawa. And she said to me, Hey, I'd like to have the Trudeaus over for dinner. The, uh, the embassy was having a fit, right? Oh my God, you can't do that before you meet with the prime minister. Blah, 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 blah. And Vicky just said, it's Thursday. They're coming over. <laughs> just, just let them know. And she was I'm breaking like, a little protocol, I would say. Totally breaking protocol. Totally. And, uh, that's that's what spouses and partners do for ambassadors. That's so, right. you know, and so they came over and it was just it was like a group of friends at dinner. We were talking about everything and going through everything. And and, and it was not 
with any of the pomp and circumstances that you might have. Remember, third party. He's like not even the the opposition. He's down down another notch. And so we developed a really nice personal relationship. You know, we prepped the embassy for a change, a potential change in leadership. And so once the election took place and he became the prime minister, we went right into action and started getting things done and had a lot of success. He joined the Paris Accord right away with uh, Barack Obama. And then we invited him to a state dinner, the first in nearly 20 years for a prime minister of Canada. And we had a reciprocal invitation for Barack Obama. Uh, to come and speak before parliament. That was more than 20 years before a president had, had spoken. And so it really was was fantastic. But there's a lot of substance here. And he cares a lot. It's, it's, it's at its core. It was interesting. You know, it was funny when he announced his first cabinet. And it, he said it's going to be half women and half men. And people were like, and that isn't the proportion in parliament. And like, well, why would you do that? He says, it's 2015. And everybody's like, oh, and so it's a statement, right? And there, oh, by the way, I worked with all, all those more incredibly talented uh, leaders, and he did a great job at assembling his, his, his team, but he went out of his way to lean in, to push forward, to demonstrate his differences in climate, in gender, in, and tried his best to reach out to one of the most sensitive topics, I think, that has been there historically in the country, and that's with the uh, the Native Aboriginal First Nations uh, communities, which you're familiar with on a personal basis, that he reached out to those communities and, and tried really hard in a process of what I would deem to be reconciliation. We're facing, look, tough times in our country dealing with race and acceptance of the behaviors we've historically built in, you know, Canada has its own and uniquely challenging aspects. And I think, you know, as much for that population, as well as others that are different, but, you know, he's, he's doing, I think, the hard work that he's taking, you know, not necessarily the easiest path. And, and sure, when you dive into those areas, you can be subject to you know, criticisms. Why didn't you do it this way or that way or this way? The fact of the matter is, I think he should get a lot of credit for just tackling the issue and driving ahead. Because you know what? In many of these, there are no one right answers. It's just a, it's a series of answers and recognition. And so I, I think the world of him, both personally and professionally, and he, he is a man of deep substance, um, even though some people look at it, as you said, good looks and, and, uh, and, and, and maybe his background in, in teaching and yoga and ski instructor, they don't think that that's there, but don't, don't underestimate this man. I would tell you that. Do you and Vicki still maintain that relationship on a personal level with the prime minister? You know, um, I would say Vicky more so with Sophie than I do with the prime minister. He's quite busy and look, I'm very respectful of, you know, the, the, the life that he leads. And I clearly we had much more interaction with him when we were there. Did I see him a lot at different events and in different ways? Uh, my visits back to Canada over the last few years? Yes. Um, but it's not, it's clearly not the same um, as when we lived at, you know, around the corner from sure. him. And, 
in the same neighborhood, yeah. neighbor, yeah. so to speak, right? You know, yeah. foreign policy is something that I think is unknown to many Americans. You, you know, even using the term foreign, it is it actually is applicable. It's foreign to Americans. And yet at the same time, it is so impactful on American lives. Americans' relationships with our allies, you know, they'll ebb and flow. And at times they can become strained. You know, I personally feel that never in my lifetime have we had a greater American uncertainty than we have today. How's that impacted our relationship with Canada in your view? And what are the things that are going to need to be addressed in a new administration to alleviate those concerns? So I, I would say the the relationship over the last three and a half years with Donald Trump has never been more harmful to the relationship with Canada under any other administration, Republic, Republican, Democrat, uh, conservative, liberal alike. And look, we like family. You can get down at the table and have disagreements, but you're still family. When you have a disagreement or you have a different perspective, the relationship is still based on trust. And relationships between countries, just like relationships between individuals and your family or even in the business world, it's based on trust. Trust is, takes a long time. To develop, it's, it's, it's layered on over actions and reactions and interactions over life. But boy, you can lose that trust like that. You can just lose it by doing something that that breaks that trust bond. And then, if you have to earn it back, it takes that much longer. It's not impossible. Hopefully, it's not. I don't believe it is, but it's hard. So Donald Trump immediately attacked Canada. Uh, with steel and aluminum tariffs on the basis of U.S. national security, which is ludicrous since Canadian steel and aluminum helped make most of our military equipment or at least a large part of it over generations from World War II on. He threatened their auto industry. Now, their auto industry, we make the cars together, literally half the content of Canadian cars is U.S. <laughs> content. I mean, it's kind of like we do this together. So he says, I'm going to threaten your auto industry. Um, he called the prime minister names, and even from the White House, Navarro said there was a special place in hell for the prime minister of Canada, which I went on U.S. national TV and demanded an apology. And I got as close to an apology out of Peter Navarro <laughs> that anybody could get. And they threatened the foreign minister, which is now the deputy prime minister, Krista Freeland. And even recently, Bob, they talked about potentially putting troops up next to the U.S.-Canada border. And they were going to withhold the N95 mask while Canadians were dying. Yet, they, you know, it shows how naive the administration is. Because people say, well, why wouldn't we just keep them for the U.S. as opposed to sending them there? Um, the materials to make those masks happen to come from Canada. A large part of the, the, the fiber comes from British Columbia. Oh, and by the way, the nurses who are wearing those masks are coming from Windsor into Detroit to save lives. I mean, it's... The relationship is so much more complex than the than the shoot from the hip kind of moves. And this week, as we, you and I are on this call, this week they're also talking about potentially reimposition of tariffs on Canadian aluminum again. So I think you know, these the are these are elements of foreign policy again that, generally speaking, is not talked about amongst Americans. They're political speaking points that are used for. Uh, hypersensitive conversation in the political arena. 
but they're not talked about in the reality of the way you're describing it and why these things are important to Americans. So I laid out how Canada was our best friend. And I believe our best trading partner, even though it may not be the always the largest, but our best trading partner, and how we share this continent together and how we protect each other in this continent and do all these things. So this this in relationship, in my view, is existential and intertwined. And while we can see things through different lenses, but Donald Trump doesn't view relationships as being important. It's all about me. It's all about winning his reelection. It's all about his personal gain for his family. Uh, I didn't read Bolton's book, but I've sure seen enough accounts of it that, you know, every decision that Donald Trump, every single decision that he had experienced was through the lens of personal gain, as opposed to putting country before yourself. And which, you know, that's how I viewed the oath of office. And I viewed it putting country before self. Well, that's why they call it being a public servant. Correct. Absolutely right. That's why they call it being a public servant. And, you know, I, I even to this day, Bob, you know, we, we swore in on that oath of office to the Constitution protecting against enemies to foreign and domestic. You know, when we leave the ambassador post, they don't have like a swearing out ceremony. OK, you swore in. It's over. <laughs> OK. I'm still under oath as far as I'm concerned. And my day is fighting for our country every day. I think the damage, you know, it, like if you have a wound and you have a little cut, if it's a little nick, it heals pretty quickly. But the deeper the wound, the longer it takes to heal. Excellent. And this wound is getting deeper and deeper every day. Donald Trump is in office. And so my view is that we got to get him out of here because I can't even imagine how deep that wound would be if he was president for four more years. Because all the only the only guardrail he has now is this reelection. And so, you know, if that guardrail has gone, then you know, what's to stop him from, you know, from anything? Well, there there's a lot of information out there and and concern out there which we we could certainly jump into the deep end of the pool with what i'd like to before we do that is you had mentioned early in your conversation about the prime minister's approach to building and or repairing the relationship with the indigenous people in canada and you brought that up in the context of the struggles we are facing in the United States today with our own race relations, systemic racism that is so prevalent at the moment. Is there anything that you learned through your relationship with the prime minister and the way he handled that with the indigenous populations of Canada that potentially we could be guided by as we pursue repairing our own relationships in the U.S.? That's a really good question and such a sensitive topic for so many people. I just want everyone to know that I recognize that I speak coming from a world of white privilege. And I, I was born this way, and so this is what we have. I also recognize through living in downtown Chicago in a highly segregated city 
and the challenges that we face. And I've done a lot of personal introspection during the time of my life as to how to conduct oneself in these things. So I, I come at this in a, in a very humble way and knowing that we're all still trying to figure this out and deal with it. I would say that the prime minister, you remember his dad was prime minister as well. Yeah, I do. And my sense is in his heart and in his desires and in our conversations, he takes this so seriously. And his desire is to do what's right. But here's the challenge. And I was good friends with the national chief. They have a national chief who sits in Ottawa, who is um, in, in, in all essence, a representative of the uh, First Nations peoples throughout, throughout the country. But each chief had a different perspective as to what needed to be done for reconciliation, right? Sure. And so there, the, the, the point is you've gotta, you can't let that inhibit you. You've got to go at it. Now, there was one thing he did, which was this recognition of your, the native language. And the promotion and working with the, the, the chief's partner and, and wife, um, who was also a good friend, and working with her in promoting the retention and education and the, the renewal of the Aboriginal language. Language is like a part of culture. And what happened for a long time is that they tried to erase that language and that culture of the First Nations people in, in, in these school programs that they had throughout the country. I think that there was this recognition of what they did, how they did it, and then this recognition of, wow, let's, get, let, let's, let's bring back and let their culture thrive and be alive. And I think that we should understand that with, with culture. And I think that many of our populations in the United States may not have a specific language, but they all have a specific culture. And we should reward and acknowledge that culture in that way and celebrate it. I remember going to a, a powwow dance with the governor general, and I got out and I danced with the First Nations people. Look, I'm the worst dancer in any <laughs> regard. But boy, was I'll never forget that experience of being with them and developing an appreciation and understanding and having it explained to me why we dance and what we do and the music that went around it. And I would say we should just all acknowledge the differences with each other and find paths to uh, come together um, celebrating the differences, not highlighting the differences as a, a means of confrontation, which unfortunately have existed a long time in, in all of humanity. It sounds to me like you did learn a bit about humanitarian initiatives and equality initiatives from the Canadian people while you were in Canada. What would you say to people who feel that cultural understanding and humanitarian initiatives are not significant elements of foreign policy. How would you address that? Did you address that when you were the ambassador? And how would you address that now as a former 
diplomat. And then in the few minutes we have left, I just want to open the floor to you for maybe anything that you would like to share with folks that I haven't covered here today. So uh, you're absolutely right. Um, the structure of diplomacy is structured. <laughs> it's it's dictated by norms and behaviors and um, so true. You know, proto- protocol. So true. And I'm going to take there's a, minute. a reason for that. I, I get. Oh, that. there is. There's a reason. Oh, absolutely. For that. Yeah. There is. But I'm going to take a minute and describe to everybody what uh, my my life partner, wife, and best friend did while we were in Canada. And what she did was she recognized the role of the artist. And in her recognition of the role of the artist, that through the work of art, you can tackle issues that may be really hard to say out loud. And you can tackle those issues such as race and gender and sexual orientation and and immigration and environment and all of these probably challenging issues that some people clam up a little bit and get uncomfortable talking about. And she developed this series of bringing iconic American artists up to Canada and speaking in the National Gallery, the uh, museum of the country uh, located in Ottawa, kind of like our Smithsonian. And she called it Contemporary Conversations. And this series talked about each of these various aspects through art and through conversation and discussion. And we were able to open up a stream, and I'll say we, the larger we, Vicky, was able to open up a stream of conversations that were uh, groundbreaking, I think. And, you know, I think it tackled many of these issues that you talk about that we don't necessarily do. So there's hard diplomacy, like in hard power and soft power, Diplomacy is softer power. And then there's softer diplomacy versus, you know, harder diplomacy. And she used that. I, you know, Hillary used uh, the concept of culinary diplomacy. And that was important because so much gets done over the dinner table between a, a meal. And this art and embassies program, which, you know, Vicki leveraged upon, was started with John F. Kennedy and Jacqueline. Kennedy Onassis later, uh, but Jackie Kennedy. And, uh, you know, that program has been around since the 1960s. But I think the evolution of that to this contemporary conversations really, really was one of the richer parts of our engagement with the Canadians. That is a fantastic program. And I would love for Americans to have an opportunity to learn more about what the Arden Embassies initiative is. And clearly, your wife, Vicki, executed on that opportunity and presented America at its finest in developing those conversations with the Canadians. It, you know, it's been, a, it's been a true pleasure having this conversation with you today. I really appreciate your time. We thank you for your service to the United States. We thank Vicki for her commitment and her service to the United States. And I just want to say, on a personal note, you clearly left a significant impression, a good one, I might add, on the Canadians. And hopefully we will have an opportunity again in the future to continue that path with our friends up north. Thanks for that. We, you know, in life, we're all just um, 
I think of it like we run a relay race. We get the baton for a little while. We run our segment. And then you hand the baton off to the next person running the race. And we gave it all. We ran as fast as we could, as hard as we could from the moment we got that that baton to the moment we handed it off. I, I am I am deeply hopeful that uh, the next set of uh, people who get this baton for us around the world and from Washington on, that they too run along a very good path that takes us to the place that I hope that we will end up in in the not too distant future. Well, allow me to remind the listeners that you and Vicki's book, Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty, is available for purchase at all of your favorite online retailers. And allow me to thank you listeners for joining us today on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowake. Please click and subscribe for notification of my future podcast. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or can be downloaded to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Thank you for listening and many blessings.